More than a week later, the fallout from that disastrous Trump-Putin summit in Helsinki has not abated. And while events were unfolding, Skullduggery was at the Aspen Security Forum interviewing some key players who have unique perspectives on the story. There is absolutely no collusion. I didn't make a phone call to Russia. I have nothing to do with Russia. Everybody knows it. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I told the American people I did not trade arms for hostages. My heart and my best intentions still tell me that's true. But the facts and the evidence tell me it is not. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. The British government has learned that Saddam Hussein recently sought significant quantities of uranium from Africa. How many times do I have to answer this question? Can you just say Russia no is a it? ruse. I'm Michael Isikoff, Chief Investigative Correspondent for Yahoo News. And I'm Dan Clydman, Editor-in-Chief of Yahoo News. Well, Dan, we've got a skullduggery first today. Tom Bossert, the uh, Trump uh, White House former Homeland Security Advisor, uh, who was recently shoved out by uh, John Bolton, the new National Security Advisor, uh, is going to appear on the show. And I think that makes him the first Trump administration official ever to appear on skullduggery. Uh, yeah, and um, it, it's a fascinating interview. Um, he um, some fairly sort of thinly veiled criticism of his former boss, particularly on cybersecurity, which was a really big part of his uh, portfolio as uh, as his as Trump's homeland security advisor. Um, and also, you know, he fits into this pattern of very senior uh, Trump national security advisors who have begun to really criticize. Um, uh, 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 you know, the president himself. At the Aspen Security Forum, we saw Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence, uh, push back pretty hard against uh, Trump. Um, uh, Chris Ray, the FBI director, did the same thing. So um, there seems to have been some kind of an inflection point, And uh, we saw some of that on right. Skullduggery with Tom Bossert. Right. And what's important about uh, Bossert is, like, everybody is talking about, uh, are we going to be able to protect uh, our election this year in 2018 from another Russian attack, uh, as had happened in 2016? Um, Bossert knows more about cybersecurity than um, anybody left at that White House. And you'll hear that in this uh, in this interview. And what uh, he says is not very reassuring. So uh, listen absolutely. up. And then also, we've got, uh, as our second guest, Vladimir Putin's bet noir, his uh, biggest nemesis, Bill Browder, uh, a guy the Russian governments want their hands on. And um, instead, he's here talking to Skullduggery. And it's a fascinating interview. Browder tells his whole story, um, how he went to Russia, um, uh, made a lot of money there uh, after the uh, end of the Cold War. Um, and, uh, and and how he ended up becoming uh, Putin's nemesis and how in some ways um, that relationship um, ends up fueling um, a lot of the things that uh, Bob Mueller um, is investigating, um, including uh, the famous Trump Tower meeting. So it's a really, really interesting conversation. Well, it was uh, a really uh, eye-opening week in Aspen. And uh, contrary to everybody's expectation, including our colleagues, we actually did some work. So let's get to the interviews. We are now joined by uh, Tom Bossert, uh, the former Homeland Security Advisor in the Trump White House, a member of the National Security Council, and uh, now enjoying life post-government as a uh, ABC News analyst. Um, yes, thank you for having me here. I'm an ABC contributor and a very happy, very happy Aspen Institute attendee. Um, so, look... Uh, Obviously, there has been uh, enormous controversy over the president's handling of the Helsinki summit and uh, especially those comments right off the bat, uh, which uh, questioned the U.S. intelligence findings because Vladimir Putin had denied them. That stunned a lot of people. Um, what was your take when you heard the president's comments in Helsinki? Well, let's take apart the Helsinki criticism if we can. The first one seems to be that he had a private meeting with another foreign head of state. And the supposition there is that other foreign head of state is so evil that how possibly could one man have a private meeting with him, even if he is the president? And I think the undertone to that criticism 
is that some people have decided they distrust and dislike President Trump so much that they don't trust him to carry out uh, national security matters on their behalf. Isn't the issue there that there was no other U.S. officials present for the meeting? Well, I think there's a number of issues. I believe, as I just said, the, the biggest motivator behind that criticism is a distrust in the man, and I can't change that. I don't share that distrust in him. But those that distrust him uh, find it very unsettling to think that he's got their future security matters in his, in their hands in a private meeting uh, where they can't hear and oversee everything that he does and says. Uh, you're right, though. There is another few layers of criticism that I've seen uh, come through. One of them is this fear that the conversation might have been taped, and I think uh, then you're imagination fills in all the things he might have said and so forth. Uh, I think the other fear seems to be that uh, an American official wasn't with him. I'm not sure if I understand, though, the concern. Uh, I think both foreign leaders were in the, in the same uh, footing in that situation, right? I mean, the director of national intelligence, Dan Coats, was unaware of what the president and Putin had talked about. Now, that does seem to be a problem if you're the chief intelligence officer of the United States and you don't know what the president is communicating to and agreeing with the president of Russia. Well, fair enough as a question, but that's not a function of whether they were or were not alone. That's a function of what the president has communicated back to his staff and how quickly he has done so. Um, again, it's about trust in the president's judgment. If he felt things were told to him that he needed to share immediately with his senior intelligence uh, advisor. Uh, that's his judgment call. I suspect that the president intends to give Dan Coates uh, and uh, Secretary Mattis and everyone else of importance on the security component side of his cabinet a full rundown of that which he discussed uh, with Vladimir Putin as soon as he has that opportunity. Uh, I think what we've just seen is an insight into the timing and the style of leadership of this president. He hasn't uh, commanded all of his cabinet to his side the moment the meeting ended to brief them. I suspect, for instance, that Mike Pompeo does know what was discussed. He was there with him and sitting next to him. And as they flew back home, there was an opportunity to, to debrief. So I think Dan just got put in the middle of a little bit of a firestorm for uh, for being away from the president for the days interceding. So if you had been in your uh, previous job as Homeland Security Advisor and um, you knew that the president was planning to meet with, uh, with uh, Putin uh, alone, um, you would have been fine with that. You wouldn't have raised any questions. And would you consider that best practices? <clears throat> well, uh, I've been in those positions. And uh, in each instance, we think those things through. And it's up to the president's uh, personal preference as well. And so there's quite a bit of choreography that goes into these meetings and uh, quite a bit of staff um, exchange in, in the lead up. Uh, in some cases, the culture of some foreign leaders necessitate pull-asides in private conversations. In fact, you can't, uh, in some cultures, cultivate a trusted relationship if the other side, just culturally, if you will here, perceives that you're unwilling or unable to speak to them privately uh, or contemporaneously. In fact, that was what some experts advised the president as he approached the Kim Jong-un summit, to please build in. In fact, I believe it was... Um, um, at least two different former Obama officials and Clinton cabinet members that said, uh, Mr. President, please consider a private pull-aside with Kim Jong-un. Culturally, he will not trust you if you don't do that. Uh, I don't know what the calculus was. I'm not a Russia culture expert, but I suspect in the lead-up I would have been a bit nervous, as every staffer is, to let their principal be, uh, because you can only impart to them so much before you um, become parental in a sense. Uh, if President Trump, though, felt like it was important to have a private conversation and he thought that through, uh, it's his prerogative. Now, uh, I don't know how long that conversation was. I've seen different reports on it. What's Two hours it? is what it's been reported. I've, I've seen that. One of the things that becomes difficult, what I would have suggested to him, is at a certain point, cut that private conversation shorter. And then bring in And bring in the staff, staff. just because it becomes a burden on you to interpret inflections meaning, and so forth, while you're also engaging in the conversation. Mm -hmm. I think all of us are familiar with that. All right. So that that's one part of the criticism. But obviously, also, there's the question of the, the, the public comments at the press conference afterwards. Now, you were with then-President-elect Trump at Trump Tower when he's first briefed in January uh, of 2017 about the U.S. intelligence findings about uh, Russia's attack on the U.S. election and Putin's direct role in ordering it. Um, he was presented the evidence. It was all clear. He was uh, 
also briefed again as recently as the week before the um, uh, before the summit by Rod Rosenstein about the Mueller indictment, uh, indicting twelve GRU officers for the hack on the DNC and the Podesta emails. So how is it after all these briefings? he can still make the comments he did suggesting maybe it wasn't Russia, Putin denied it, um, what about that DNC server? I mean, it's as though none of these briefings, some of which you attended, sunk in at all. Yeah, no, fair. And the reason I, I, I took a step back wasn't to avoid that question. The Helsinki press conference performance, or at least the substantive part that we're discussing here, not, uh, not the lead up to it, was just um, disappointing. I, I have no answer for it. I, I've said such publicly. I don't want to be overly critical of what the president's attempting to do in terms of rekindling a, a security relationship with the Russians. But to watch that was um, uh, hard to understand and hard to explain. And, and, and let me elaborate. Mm -hmm. One particularly disappointing subtext or subcomponent of that response uh, that the president gave to that line of questioning had to do with his invocation of the DNC server as being relevant to the forensic analytics here. Um, it's interesting because uh, you might recall, and I mentioned this in a recent uh, public, public exchange, you might recall that the Chinese government hacked not the uh, election uh, committees, but the actual Campaigns, campaigns, both the uh, McCain but and Obama campaigns, both in of them, two thousand eight. Yeah, they they actually hacked them and got really uh, interesting and substantive information. Now, there's a lot of things you can do with those types of hacks. They had root level control, unbeknownst to to Obama and his staff. Root level control, meaning you can just take it and read it. Policy you, papers, policy papers, personnel decisions. You can also yeah. take those things, modify them without the knowledge of the team. So, in theory, you could change a word in a speech, and no one would really know if you intercepted the document in between me sending it and and President-elect Obama receiving it and then him uttering the words from a podium. <laughs> That's pretty scary, it's by scary the way. As, as scary as can be. And I'll tell you, you can ultimately subtly or directly influence U.S. policy in that way. And so uh, the reason I raise it is we then subsequently had someone, I'm not blaming uh, directly President Obama, but someone leaked that information seemingly from him, from his camp, if you will. That was troubling for us. And the question that came... You mean back in 2008? Back in 2008. That was I not, think it was leaked... To Newsweek. To Newsweek. The we Newsweek election uh, yeah. special uh, was where, where that first came out. Well, one day you guys will tell me your source. But I think <laughs> that uh, the point is it was troubling, uh, and there's always a perennial debate over whether you should report things or whether we should hate you for them and so on But uh, in the security field. But I uh, found that to be a troubling leak, and, and it, it led to a really troubling uncomfortable conversation for me and the cybersecurity professionals at the time and still to this day. And the question was, how do you know? So you see, the way in both instances, the way uh, the hacked party found out that they had been hacked wasn't to discover it on their own, but it was to receive a phone call or a door knock in this case from the federal government. For the U.S. government, I was the one that kind of coordinated this in the Bush White House, to reach out to the campaign of Barack Obama and say, hey, it's the Bush White House. Remember back then he wasn't a popular president at the time, mm -hmm. and he was being accused of overly abusive surveillance authorities and Patriot Act abuses and so forth. Hey, we happen to know that there's a foreign government service in your computer system. How do you know if you're not spying on us, was their question. They planted that question. I, I don't know if it was in your news really? reporting. But it was in the general public debate at the time. That was exceedingly uncomfortable for me at the time. It remains such, but I think now people have a different understanding, a more mature understanding of the field. Uh, clearly, clearly, there was a way to know, short of spying on the good guys. Now, you don't want to get into admitting or discussing the sources and methods and so forth of how you might spy on the bad guys and when and why you do it. But of course, the, re the leak leads to the question, leads to that revelation in the public, and it leads to the bad guys knowing that we might be in their system. So that was the 10-year-ago history, but I found it to be an interesting observation because we had a president who seemingly didn't understand what we told him directly, and that is that there are other means to develop forensic certainty, certitude on how you were hacked. And yet, you know, President Obama didn't quite have the same degree of public mistrust or hate at that point surrounding him. Uh, nobody said, boy, how could you keep promulgating the question of how... Now, he also cleared it up. It's not entirely analogous, right? So I'm getting to the criticism. 
for a little bit of time, though, he failed to understand how we might know, and he or his team allowed this kind of controversy to, to persist. You're talking about? Foreign hack into an election system of this country. Obama you're talking Obama, about Obama, right? Okay. Uh, flash forward to Trump, and I felt a little bit like I was in a time warp, but I was very disappointed to hear him put forth this, the insinuation that the access to or denied access to the DNC server might have, if this is indeed what he meant, some forensic value to the determination of who hacked, right? Who was the party that hacked? Um, I've got a great deal of confidence in how we know that and why we know it's the Russians, and I'm uh, an authority on the matter. Uh, I don't know if that's the, uh, the, the question or the cloud he was seeking to raise. He might have raised it simply as a separate matter. He's troubled that we don't have access to that DNC server for other But how many, how many times did you brief the president on this? Um, yeah, I just – I won't quantify. I, we, we talked um, extensively on, on cybersecurity. Um, I, I thought we had a sufficient number of conversations on, on this particular matter. Uh, but remember, it, it was a quite long report and there were a number of senior people that briefed him on it um, uh, with, with subject matter expertise. So uh, I'm not entirely clear. And I'm not uh, right here ready to indict him for having raised that to sow uh, doubt in the intelligence conclusion of the of the Russian identity in this matter. But if that was um, if that's the result that people listening felt that he was calling into question the identity, then I was disappointed by that. Well, Tom, you know him uh, pretty well, um, and um, the one of the prevailing theories as to why um, he has not uh, fully accepted. Um, that, that the Russians did what uh, I think most of us know and the intelligence community firmly believes um, they did um, is that he believes that it undermines um, his legitimacy um, as president. They didn't win the election fair and square. Is that To you, look, is that plausible? a plausible – Look, I get it. To be real honest with you, I get it. The coverage, not present company excluded, but the, pre- the coverage in general has been in some cases intentionally. In other cases, I think just uh, from a misinformed – point of view, um, highly um, misleading, right? So this president, right, be him for a second to your listener. He doesn't get the question once a month. He gets the question three times a day. Wasn't it true or isn't it true that you're only president because the Russians turned you into a puppet, right? You're a puppet, right? You know, you remember the famous, he gets that question or the premise insinuated into most questions every day. It grows frustrating and tiresome for him to hear, you're not really a legitimately elected president because the Russians meddled in the outcome. And so I think he gets himself to the point where he's fed up with it. I also think he feels, and maybe you see this too with the amount you travel, that there's a large component of the U.S. populace that also feels frustrated with that storyline. It's incessant. And they find they find that his um, kind of colloquial rejection of it, even when he gets colorful in, in, in doing it, they find it to be almost refreshing because you're dismissing these annoying questioners in a, in a way that's dismissive and they like it. Now, I'm telling you, the reason I'm disappointed and the reason this one has more legs is uh, it's unfortunate that he allowed that frustration to come through while he was serving in such an important commander-in-chief role on foreign soil in such a big meeting. That's the kind of thing you expect to see him do at a, at a rally or on, on the podium at the White House domestically. Uh, you know, it was an off day for him. He came out of there trying to curry favor and expected to be able to get through a very positive meeting, a positive uh, coverage cycle, probably akin to what he experienced uh, in his uh, North Korea summit. And instead, he got hit with a lot of these domestic political questions, doesn't want to try to parse it all. But isn't and, that another uh, reason that, that, you, that you would want aides in there? Uh, so when you come out of that meeting... Um, uh, they can uh, give you some some perspective and some context so that you don't go out and and uh, and, and and make the, the kinds of mistakes that he made. Yeah, well, no, he he had aides with him on that trip that spoke to him in the in the period of time after the private meeting and before the press conference. Uh, both foreign leaders went and collected their thoughts and and had time to huddle with their staffs. Um, so, look, I don't mean to pile on him. I have stated pretty clearly I was disappointed. I think others have. Uh, in the president's press conference performance, he needed to correct that. It seemed to be appeasing Putin far too much. Uh, in fact, it seemed uh, oddly um, to suggest that he believed Putin's galling assertions and, and and dismissals and so forth. And so, I think uh, it's the best you know kind of we're going to get from a president that, that doesn't like to be criticized for this type of thing. But he did that. He went out and essentially said, "I, I got that wrong, folks. I'm sorry." And uh, 
Uh, he also needed to start running through a litany of things that he did discuss in that private conversation. I believe he did that in his first um, kind of post-press conference attempt to remediate this situation. If you recall, he didn't just start to suggest double negatives and, and so, mis, misunderstandings and so forth. He also went through a list of all the topics that they discussed. I actually think that was probably more important than the other. Let me uh, uh, just take you back to that uh, January 6, 2017 uh, uh, briefing from the U.S. intelligence community. You were there in the room. Were you also there in the room when uh, the other – Intelligence, the CIA, DNI left, and Comey stayed behind and handed Trump the um, uh, the dossier, the information from the dossier. I was not. Did you um, talk hear- about a private meeting without staff? <laughs> <laughs> Did you ever hear about what the president's reaction to that was? Um, boy, I love the line of questioning, but I'm I'm a little too close to. Um, probably the most sensitive uh, classified information in those briefings that, that a person can get. And uh, I'm going to try to avoid any characterization of it. Dancing around these questions and the atmospherics is, uh, is, is tantamount. They're running into some, some jeopardy. All right. You were the Homeland Security Advisor. Uh, you had a huge portfolio, cybersecurity, counterterrorism, uh, emergency uh, preparedness, disasters. Um, and you're no longer in that job. <laughs> um, who is, by the way, at the moment? Well, it's a little bit of a different job, as I understand it now. They've crafted it a little differently. Uh, but there's a gentleman named uh, Doug Fears, an admiral in the United States Coast Guard, uh, a gentleman that worked for me when I was at the White House. And uh, he is currently the Homeland Security Advisor. And uh, I think a lot of us are rallying around him, hoping he has great success. Okay, so how is it you came to leave the White House? Uh, well, you know, I, I think uh, it's been pretty well reported, but um, uh, I think it was um, time for me to go and time for the president and uh, Ambassador Bolton to try a different organizational structure and allow them to have a, a different, apparently, uh, what I can tell from the outside now, much smaller National Security Council staff uh, with a different organizational structure. And um, what, what was I, the thinking? What I hope is that um, what I hope is that the portfolio that I had. Um, isn't neglected as it is folded under the existing and large and complicated portfolio that Ambassador Bolton inherited. Uh, there's precedent for both organizational structures, really for three or four different ones. So I think it's um, uh, not for me to comment on the wisdom of their current structure. I'm going to watch it and see if there's any change in performance. But um, I'm rooting for them. Uh, it was just uh, a time for me to go. And um, and uh, the president and I had a very, very heartfelt and long conversation about it. And I think it's safe to say that uh, I was a bit sad to leave and he was a bit sad to see me go. And uh, he's got my uh, uh, support and spirit uh, at this point. And if, uh, if that organizational structure doesn't work, it'll be a shame because it'll be a failure to him. It wasn't his idea. Uh, and we owe him a lot of things. And uh, one of them is professional advice. And, and one of those components of professional advice requires us to, to be mission-centric and not egocentric. So a big party your portfolio uh, was cybersecurity, correct? Yeah. No, I see uh, where you guys are driving, and, right? Is there anybody else there? I said this yesterday right. that understands cyber... Well, uh, and the and, cyber and, coordinator... And, and, and consequence management in, the, in a federal system that we have and, uh, and, and counterterrorism globally, transnationally. Uh, I have a unique set of skills. And um, I don't know how good or bad I am at, at, at advising a president, but uh, I do have a lot of unique experiences as well. Uh, you know, every one of us is different. Admiral Fears knows things that I don't. He's uh, he's commanded uh, operational uh, coasties in the, yeah, uh, but, in the field or a I, sea, I, I, I guess. I got to say, world. you we'll know, see. an admiral in the Coast Guard does not instantly leap out as somebody who would have a special expertise in cybersecurity threats. Ah, well, you know, neither does a lawyer from GW, you know. And I, <laughs> uh, I just I have a lot of time in t- on target there, yeah. and uh, I ask a lot of good questions, and I was part of the cybersecurity strategy development in the in the Bush era when, when we really created or cultivated it for the first time. So I've got some more experience there. But you know what? Uh, you can offset your shortcomings with good staff and good support around you. And I think Admiral Fears will, will step up. Right, but, but the significance here is, as, as Danny just referred to, you know, at the same time you left, Rob Joyce, who was your cyber expert, also left. Um, and by the way, this was all sort of reported, at least in your case, about uh, uh, John Bolton. Um, wanted you out and wanted to have more direct control of the NSC staff. But what does it say about our preparations for uh, 
the 2018 election and the continuing cyber threats that uh, uh, DNI Coates uh, talked about uh, recently, setting the system was blinking red, when the experts at the White House, the officials in charge of coordinating government responses to these, are pushed out and no experts in the subject are there to replace them. Well, uh, cyber troubles me more in this case because um, consequence management is something that we've mastered uh, if, if well-managed in this country. Uh, it has a lot to do with the local and state officials affected by any calamity, uh, whether it be a terrorist attack or some other hazard like a hurricane. But in that case, we have a FEMA administrator and we have a Secretary of Homeland Security and we have some well-established uh, routines and some muscle memory. Uh, with respect to counterterrorism, we have some similarly empowered uh, cabinet members with some decent established strategy, and I'm proud of that uh, strategy uh, and and those changes we made to it in counterterrorism during my tenure. I think there's some positive results there that we haven't talked about enough. But uh, on cyber, there is no clear person or clear driver, and there is no clear muscle memory. I suggested to a group that we are in some way playing jazz music, improvising uh, policy because there is no playbook for it, and so. Uh, yes, if you're asking me, do I have any concerns? The concern there would be who's minding the store in the coordination and development and the proactive advocation of new uh, and creative cyber policies and strategies. Uh, I think Ambassador Bolton has to be very seriously thinking about augmenting the staff to make up for uh, losing Rob Joyce and others. Uh, Dan Coates, uh, the DNI, said that he's worried about a cyber 9-11. Uh, 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 John McLaughlin, former CIA uh, acting director and deputy director said uh, cyber 9-11 in his view has already occurred, which was what the Russians did in the, in the uh, 2016 uh, election. Um, how, how concerned are you about, about the, the nature of the threat? Uh, I don't like the hyperbole comparing to um, large-scale mass casualty events. Um, you know, the cyber threat is real. It's scary. There's a lot of downside uh, risk to the United States. We're the largest and earliest adopter of uh, very hard-to-secure technologies connected to the Internet that we've uh, surrendered many of our daily um, lifestyle decisions to. Um, in other words, the, the lifeline sectors like power and banking. Uh, so we have a, a big glass house that we live in. And a lot of other countries can afford uh, to live in an analog life for a, for a while. I think Americans would have a hard time with that. So, uh, but a mass casualty event conjures in the listener's ear that there could be a cyber attack. Now, it's possible it could be that would lead to the loss of 3,000 lives. Uh, the cyber Pearl Harbor rhetoric we saw in the last administration troubled me for the same reason. Um, a lot larger scale loss of life with a lot, I think, larger implication at that point in time with, with World War II. Uh, brewing as it was. So <clears throat> for me, I'm troubled. I just want to try to avoid hyperbole. And I'll, I'll, I'll walk through some of the differences, but um, I, had a, a, I had a discussion recently with the difference in the weaponeering. Okay. And so what I want to do is try to educate people on the different understandings of weaponeering. If you were um, a junior officer in the United States military, it would not be unusual for you to be empowered to have control over even weapons release authority over million dollars of ordnance and large uh, destructive forces and, and personnel under your command. Um, it would be a much different battlefield, if it were, if you were to empower a young uh, military man or woman with the cyber weapon and said, go ahead, use it to your heart's, heart's content. Use it appropriately. The reason is we have to first better educate them on the, the weaponeering. For a missile, there's a distance the missile will travel in a certain period of time. There's a bug splatter, so to speak, of how much uh, damage it will do on the other end, and you can control uh, ancillary or innocent casualties uh, if you understand that weaponeering. For cyber, to conduct the scanning necessary, to conduct the the, the uh, back office work for a year necessary to get into some other system, those are provocative actions in and of themselves, even if you never use the tool. And if you do get through all of those pitfalls and then deploy the tool for the purpose of, let's say, taking down some particular piece of infrastructure that's permissible within the laws of war even as sabotage, and then accidentally release some malware that takes down the innocent banks of half of Western Europe or even just Idaho, you'll have ended up in a place you don't want to be, and you'll have given authority to a level of official that you probably didn't think through. And uh, I think there's a, a difference here that, that 
So I, I used that one example. I think uh, recently I used a different one. They're all meant to try to paint a picture that you can't apply the traditional th theories of national security. Uh, the other one commonly misapplied is the notion of nuclear deterrence. In nuclear war, you're either in nuclear war or you're not. And, uh, and you can deter someone from launching that weapon through a number of, of, of means and measures. In cyber war, I just had to put it out there. It's not so much war. We are in a constant state of low-intensity conflict online right now. The missiles have been launched by comparison, if that makes sense, by mm -hmm. my analogy here. And so you can't use a classic deterrence strategy. You have to think differently. Uh, and it's going to require us taking some initial unilateral actions, bilateral as much as possible, um, carefully, uh, until we can sort our way through this. We are kind of in the dark with uh, swinging silent blades all around us. And Unilateral actions such as what? Well, let me let me give an example. We saw... Um, cyber attacks on the adversary by the United we, States we, government? We saw a cyber attack. It was malware released into the Ukraine. The United States government, while I was there, led this effort, ultimately attributed... Faithfully, not for some other political reason, we actually did the forensic work to attribute that attack to the Russians. Not just the Russians, but the Russian intelligence, Russian military. The Russians decided to use a very, very destructive cyber tool uh, to cause a great deal of harm to the Ukrainian economy. Uh, there's a reason they did that. We know the larger debate in the Russia-Ukraine-Crimea matter. But they used a cyber tool, and in so doing, they chose or failed to tailor that tool sufficiently to limit the effect of its deployment on the intended target. So they didn't just end up infecting all or most of the businesses in the Ukraine. You can have an opinion on that one way or the other. They ultimately also allowed that malware to propagate unchecked around the world. And they knew or should have known, you know, the standard of negligence or recklessness. They engaged in absolutely reckless behavior. And that ended up, you might recall this, we call it the NotPetya attack. It ended up causing billions of dollars of loss in Western Europe and the United States. And it also shut down three American ports for a period of a couple of days each. That was a tremendous, tremendous blow. FedEx suffered $300 million worth of loss. There was a, a, an operational uh, loss of time and, and, and profit for them and so forth. So terrible thing. So what was your response to this? Well, we could have waited for an international norm to emerge. And my thought was, here's the norm, here's what I want to do. I can't speak to whether right now a cyber tool used for your own national interest is right or wrong because all of us are debating that. So whether or not you were right to attack the Ukraine is a larger question that has to do with whether they're right or wrong to be engaged militarily in Ukraine to begin with. The United States has taken the position that they're wrong to begin with, whether it's a troop, a little green soldier, or a cyber tool, okay? But what I didn't think existed was a policy statement strongly from the United States that we will not tolerate a lack of proportionality and precision in your cyber weaponry. That's unacceptable. Okay. And so if you go to the rest of the world, peaceable partners and say, we'd like that, we'd like that norm. This one's reckless and we'd like to punish them with significantly painful, uh, and we did by the way, um, sanctions. Uh, we really caused some pain to Putin's oligarchs in those sanctions. This is in response to that in, attack in, in particular? In direct response to not, not Petya, we did. Uh, the Trump administration did. Uh, the other countries would understandably not just dither because multilateralism is bad by nature, but they would say, now, hold on a minute. We tend to agree with you, but what if one day in the future we release a cyber weapon for what we perceive to be a good, righteous, self-interested, unilateral goal, and then you come back and say, boy, that thing wasn't tailored enough, and it had some unintended ancillary consequence on us, and we're going to punish and sanction you, Mr. Ally. Well, let's think through. What's the standard? What exactly is the contour? And we end up caught in what happened for the last eight years. Well-intended, nice, intellectual conversation meant to not lead to unintended escalation between friends. We also ended up, as a result, paralyzed in inability, in some cases, to act. I'm not entirely critical of the Obama administration at all. They did a lot of positive things there. Uh, so in this particular case, I thought it was right to act. I sought the partnership of at least one ally to make sure that we were double-checked on our forensics and our attribution so that we couldn't be accused of monkeying with the outcome by the Russians and then having it believed uh, by those Russia believers. Uh, but after that, we had to act. Now, we had a lot of support from our allies, but they supported our action. They didn't support it before we did it. They supported it afterwards, and I thought that was great. Pretty soon, we'll have a multilateral set of norms, 
But in do you mean, think? Do you think we will have I that think pretty we soon? Will. Well, pretty soon in the grand scheme of history, we <laughs> yeah. will have that. Uh, what I mean by that is we have to lead. And the United States mm-hmm. has to take action to turn that kind of impro- improvisational playbook into a written down set of rules based on action. You know, we make some mistakes along the way. That's better than not acting. I, I, I I'll close with this. Uh, I have a bent towards action. I don't know who taught it to me. Maybe my dad as a kid. It was always do something even if it's wrong. <laughs> and, and I think that's a bent on fight or, fight or flight, right? You know, either fight the guy or run. Both are fine, but don't just stand there. And I got the sense in cyber that we were just standing there. Mm. And so um, I have great faith that we'll figure it out if the U.S. steps up, uses our values, acts within the bounds of good reason, and everyone else will follow. Well, uh, Tom Bossert, uh, we thank you for your time, and we do hope that whoever uh, ends up replacing you on the cyber brief uh, knows as much about the subject as you do. Thank you, Michael. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate being here. We'll be back with more Skullduggery. We are joined now by Bill Browder, a guy much in the news uh, these days, a man on the lam from the Russian government uh, who has uh, managed to drive Vladimir Putin crazy uh, and has found himself in the middle of the entire controversy over U.S.-Russia relations. Bill Browder, welcome to Skullduggery. Great to be here. Um, you know, a lot of people don't really know the story of how it is you came to be uh, the bete noir of Vladimir Putin. Uh, it's a fascinating one, but equally fascinating is just your background. And I don't think most people know it. So tell us who you are and particularly um, uh, your family. So um, I was born in, in Princeton, New Jersey, brought up in Chicago, um, uh, but I come from a very unusual American family. Um, my grandfather, Earl Browder, um, uh, was a labor union organizer in the 1920s, and he was so good at organizing the union that the, um, he was spotted by the communists. And they said, if you, love, if you like labor unionism, you're going to love communism. Why don't you come to Russia to check it out? And so in 1927, my grandfather went to Russia. He um, met my grandmother, um, a Russian young R- Russian lady. Um, they got, we got married, had um, three children. And returned to America, and my grandfather became the head of the American Communist Party. The head of the Communist Party. He was chairman of the Communist Party? He was chairman, general secretary of the American Communist Party. Uh, He ran for president against Roosevelt um, on the communist ticket in 1936. How many votes did he get? uh, I think he got like 100,000 votes. But what was interesting, he he got on the cover of Time magazine, um, something that – I know Donald Trump values highly. <laughs> uh, um, right. he, he, um, uh, but, but most importantly, I mean, this was during the time of uh, sort of post-Great Depression. And, um, and he ended up getting um, uh, sort of bringing the, the entire debate leftwards in the United States at that time. And so um, he had a big impact on public life. Um, were, were your parents communists as well? Well, my father was a professor of mathematics, and as were my two uncles. And... Um, um, I don't. I don't know how many professor you, professors you've met, but there's very few right wing professors out there. Um, we, we had a very left leaning household where it was kind of sort of commonly assumed that every businessman was a crook at the dinner table. Um, so uh, you come from that sort of background, grandson of a Communist Party leader, uh, child of uh, lefties sympathetic to uh, the communists, and you become uh, a huge capitalist and investor in Russia. Well, so, so my rebellion from this family of communists was to put on a suit and tie and become a capitalist. And I went to Stanford Business School, and I graduated in 1989, which was the year that the Berlin Wall came down. And as I was looking to figure out what my life was going to be like, I, um, I decided that if the Berlin Wall has just come down and, and my grandfather was the biggest communist in America, I'm going to become the biggest capitalist in Eastern Europe. And I did that. I tried to do that, and I succeeded. I ended up setting up an investment fund called the Hermitage Fund in Russia to invest in the stock market of Russia after privatization. And it genuinely became the biggest investment fund in Russia with $4.5 billion invested in the Russian stock market. And what was the attitude of the Russian government toward you in that moment? Well, so the, the, the Russian government is not – it was never it's, – we now think of it as one person, which is Vladimir Putin. But, but at the time I got started, it was under Boris Yeltsin. It was chaos at the time. And, and uh, one of the things I was trying to do at that, at that moment in time was, was – um, R- Russia was effectively like a, 
a house that had been built without putting in the plumbing and electricity. And the plumbing and electricity was rule of law and property rights. And right. so I was out there um, doing a lot of work, very, very public work and very visible and vocal work, trying to stop corruption in Russian companies through um, exposés. And, uh, and, and it was uh, quite successful, actually. And, and I had a good relationship with the various people in the Russian government. I never met Vladimir Putin, but I met a lot of other people um, who all thought I was sort of contributing to a better society out there for so, a brief period of time. So what went south? Well, it, it, so basically my, my, my agenda at the time, the, 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 the people that were really causing the trouble um, were the Russian oligarchs. These were these, at the time, 22 individuals who had stolen 40% of the country and were muscling in on everything else and stealing everything else. And, um, uh, and so I, I, w- I was uh, fighting with the oligarchs and for, for a period of time, Putin was also fighting with the oligarchs because they were steal- at, at the same time as they were stealing money from me, they were stealing power from him. And so we had this alignment of interest. And I never met the guy, but we had this alignment of interest that lasted until the moment that he decided to win his war with the oligarchs. And what he did was he arrested the richest oligarch in the country, a man named Michael Hordakovsky, the owner of Yukos. He arrested him. He put him on trial and he allowed the television cameras to come into the, uh, into the court and film the richest man in Russia sitting in a cage. And imagine you're the 17th richest man in Russia and you've just um, turned on your television on your yacht parked off the Hotel du Cap in Antibes, France, and you've just seen the richest guy, the most powerful guy, the, the guy far smarter than you sitting in a cage. What's your natural reaction going to be? You don't want to sit in that cage yourself. And so one by one by one, they went to Putin and said, hey, we don't, Vladimir, we don't want to sit in that cage. What do we have to do to make sure we don't? And he said 50%. And that was the moment that Putin became the biggest oligarch in Russia, and I would argue the richest man in the world. And that was the moment that my interest diverged from Vladimir Putin. And uh, how, but explain that. How did your interests diverge? How did you become on the outs with Putin? Well, I, I carried on doing these exposés of the oligarchs, but instead of going after his um, enemies, I was going after his 50% financial interest. And the way that that was expressed to me was um, after living in Russia for 10 years, I was living in Moscow. I'd become their largest foreign investor. I had regular access to government ministers on the telephone. I was flying back into Russia. I arrived at the VIP lounge at Cheremetyevo Airport. <clears throat> this, this is a lounge that I had sat in like 200 times before because I'd gone in and out many times. It should have been a sort of five-minute uh, 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 situation. And um, an hour later, my passport's still not processed, and then four heavily armed border guards come into the VIP lounge, grab me, frog march me down to the detention center of the airport, keep me there for 15 hours, and then deport me back to London and subsequently declare me a threat to national security of Russia. And why did they go after you at that point? Well, I, um, Putin was now a, a partner in the corruption, and I was exposing the corruption. I exposed corruption at Gazprom, uh, at the, the Spare Bank, the National Savings Bank, at Transneft, the, the pipeline. And at the time when I was exposing that corruption, that uh, when uh, Putin was fighting the, with the guys who were benefiting from it, he thought that was great. But when I was exposing that corruption and, and he was benefiting from it, he didn't think that was so good at all. And you were able to expose... Putin's personal involvement um, in and 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 his and and his uh, benefiting from uh, from that. I mean, were you able to? You said fifty percent, and he be, then became the biggest oligarch in Russia. You were able to follow the money and show that he had actually personally benefited from that. Not then, but yeah. now. Yeah. Um, and and as we get to the later part of our story, right now, I'll tell you where I can actually prove that Putin is a beneficiary of this stuff. But back then, I was just ex- exposing the fact that stealing was going on. And it shouldn't be happening. I didn't think that I didn't know or, or think that Putin was 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 the beneficiary mm. at the time. I always thought I had this sort of naive, maybe idealistic view that if Putin only knew, um, this stuff wouldn't wouldn't be happening. So pick up the narrative because you're declared a threat to national security. You're expelled, sent back to, to back to London, and is it at that point that uh, your offices in Russia are raided? So I, I get sent back to London. I do two things. I evacuate my staff and I liquidate our portfolio because I don't want them to arrest any people and I don't want them to um, uh, seize any assets. I get all our people out. I get all our money out. I think I'm scot-free, home and away, try to move on to other things. And then 18 months after I'm expelled, um, 25 police officers raid my office in Moscow and 25 more officers raid the office of my American law firm in Moscow. 
and they find all of our corporate documents, the stamp seals and certificates for our investment companies through which we invested all of our money. And then we subsequently discover that they've used these stamp seals and certificates to steal our investment companies. It was like an identity theft using these documents. And um, at the, this was the point when I hired a young lawyer named Sergei Magnitsky. Sergei Magnitsky was 35 years old. He worked for an American law firm out there, and he was a very smart fellow. And I asked him to try to investigate <clears throat> why they were doing this and to stop it. I didn't have any, at this point, any financial risk, but I had um, huge legal risk if the police were, were you know, working, <laughs> seizing assets and, and stealing things. And Sergei went out and investigated and discovered that um, the reason that they stole our companies was to subsequently apply for a, a tax refund. When we had sold all of our assets, we paid $230 million of taxes, capital gains tax, to the Russian government. And these crooks, these, these police officers and crooks, um, stole our companies and then applied for a $230 million tax refund, which was the largest tax refund in the history of Russia. And it was they applied for it on the 23rd of December, two days before Christmas, and it was uh, approved and paid out the next day on Christmas Eve, the largest tax refund in the history of Russia. We assume this must be uh, a rogue operation. C Putin couldn't have possibly authorized uh, a theft of $230 million, not of my money, but of the Russian government's money. This was money that was paid in taxes that was then refunded. And so we figured if we just brought it to the highest level of attention, including to Putin's attention, then the good guys would get the bad guys, and that would be the end of the story. And so we, we filed criminal complaints all over the country to the highest level. I went to TV, radio, and newspapers. And Sergei then, um, who was in Russia at the time, gave a sworn testimony to the uh, Russian State Investigative Committee, their version of the FBI. And we expected the good guys to get the bad guys. But instead, um, what happened was that about five weeks after Sergei testified, the same people he testified against came to his home at 8 in the morning on the 24th of November 2008, arrested him, put him in pretrial detention. And in pretrial detention, he was then tortured viciously to get him to withdraw his testimony. And um, it was just a hor horrible, horrible situation. They put him in cells with, uh, um, with 14 inmates and eight beds and left lights on 24 hours a day to impose sleep deprivation. They put him in cells with no heat and no window panes in December in Moscow, so he nearly froze to death. They put him in cells uh, with no toilet, just a hole in the floor where the sewage would bubble up. How, how, do, how do we know this? Um, did he have uh, – was he able to communicate with his wife or with you? That's a very good question. So what he did was uh, – every person has their own way of dealing with adversity in these types of situations. And Sergei, who was a, a very well-trained lawyer, decided that his way of dealing with the adversity is to write it all down in the form of criminal complaints. And so at once a month or so, he would meet with his lawyer. He'd hand him a stack of criminal complaints. And his lawyer would file them, and we would get copies. And so we have, that's how we know this. Hmm. In his um, 358 days in detention, he wrote 450 cr criminal complaints about how he was being mistreated, who was doing it to him, how they are doing it, where, when, and why. And, um, and so we have a, a, an absolutely sort of detailed granular record, probably the most detailed and granular record of any human rights abuse cases come out of Russia, probably in history. And... Um, Anyway, so, so, so Sergei's situation got worse and worse, and the purpose of all this torture was to get him to withdraw his testimony against the police officers, and they wanted to get him to sign a false confession to say that he stole the $230 million, and he did so on my instruction. And Sergei Magnitsky, um, they, they, they thought, here, here you got this guy who um, wears a red tie and a white shirt and a blue suit to an office, buys his Starbucks in the morning, you know, within a week he'll buckle. But it turns out that Sergei Magnitsky had had a, a more ironclad will and and uh, and, and a uh, a sense of integrity that that they've never seen before, and uh, he refused to buckle, and the pressure got worse and worse and worse. And um, about six months into this, then his health started to fail. He ended up uh, losing forty pounds, getting terrible pains in his stomach, and he was diagnosed diagnosed as having pancreatitis and gallstones, needing an operation, which was scheduled for the first uh, of August two thousand nine. And then about a week before the operation, they came to him again, again, demanded him to sign this false confession. And again, um, he refused. And in retaliation for his refusal, they um, moved him from a prison that had a medical facility to a maximum security prison called Butyrka, um, which is one of the worst prisons in Russia. And most significantly for Sergei, um, uh, there was no medical facility there. And, and his health completely broke down. Well, if you're, if you're withheld medical treatment and you have pancreatitis... 
that is the worst possible kind of torture. I mean, it's an excruciatingly, uh, excruciatingly painful, um, you know, thing to go through. I mean, basically, if you have pancreatitis or gallstones, which were the two things he had, um, and, and let's say you got it right now, you'd probably be able to last two hours before you're in the emergency room and they're hooking you up to an IV with morphine because it's just so horrible. They, they left him untreated for, for like three and a half months. So when did he die? Well, what happened was um, on the night of November 16th, he went into critical condition from this untreated um, uh, pancreatitis and gallstones. And on that night, the um, Butyrka authorities didn't want to have responsibility for him anymore. And so they put him in an ambulance, sent him to a different prison that had a medical wing. But instead of um, putting him in the emergency room, they put him in an isolation cell and eight riot guards with rubber batons beat him to death. And he died on November 16, 2009. He was 37 years old. He left a wife and two children. You, at that point, uh, launched what became essentially an international crusade for uh, uh, to uh, go after the Russian government officials who did this to Magnitsky. So uh, I, I got the news of his death the next morning, and I was so overwhelmingly destroyed and heartbroken and just... I just couldn't believe that they had killed him. I, I thought that it was so far beyond my worst case scenario um, that I said to myself, I made a vow to myself, to his memory and to his family, that I was going to put aside everything else I was doing and I was going to use all of my time, all of my resources and all of my energy to get justice for Sergei Magnitsky. And, and uh, we, we should have gotten justice in Russia. This was, this was well documented. This was, there, there was evidence and there was proof. But Putin personally got involved in circling the wagons in exonerating every single person involved. And he, uh, his government even gave uh, special promotions and state honors to some of the people who were most complicit. Um, and so when it became clear that there was no possibility of justice inside of Russia, I came up with this idea, which was to get justice outside of Russia. And the idea was pretty simple, which was that the people who killed Sergei did it for money, and they keep that money in the West. They keep that $230 million in the West. And I took this idea to John McCain and Senator Benjamin Cardin, Republican and Democrat. And I, I said to them, can we come up with a law named after Sergei, which would ban visas and freeze assets of the people who killed Sergei Magnitsky? And after hearing the story, the same story that I've just shared with you today, they said, yes, we can and we will. And that was the genesis of the Magnitsky Act. And um, uh, they originally put the Magnitsky Act just for Sergei Magnitsky, and then all of a sudden the phones started lighting up from other victims of the Putin regime that said, you know, you can't believe what happened to my brother, my father, my mother. And after about a dozen of these calls, um, these these two senators said, well, why don't we make this um, a, a law that applies to all human rights abusers in Russia? And um, and they added 65 words to the law. And then every victim from, of Russian oppression started coming to Washington, telling their stories to members of Congress and um, this thing went viral. So this is the one place in Washington where there was no disagreement between Democrats and Republicans. Nobody wanted Russian torturers and murderers to come to America. And, and uh, it passed the Senate 92 to 4. It passed the House of Representatives 89 percent. And President Obama signed it into law on uh, December 14, 2012. And, and let me tell you something. This Putin blew his top. He, he, hadn't, he couldn't believe that this had happened. And he, uh, in retaliation... Um, he banned the adoption of Russian orphans by American families. Right. Which ultimately became the subject of the notorious Trump Tower meeting in June of 2016 um, uh, with top Trump campaign officials and the Russians basically making the case that all this would go away. It was all Bill Browder's fault. Browder was a fraudster. Browder uh, manipulated the American Congress. Uh, Browder uh, had exaggerated what happened to Magnitsky. Magnitsky was a, uh, uh, a tax accountant. He wasn't a lawyer. He died for medical reasons, not because of any abuse, and um, uh, basically uh, identified you as uh, public enemy number one. Yeah, well, um, this is what they do. So, so the when when if uh, and they, the more you, more effective you are at at um, holding the uh, Putin regime accountable, the more angry they get, and the more angry they get, um, the more they they sort of um, throw mud at you. Um, and and they're a sovereign state. It's not just like someone saying stuff. I mean, they didn't just throw that mud at me. They they've actually put me on trial twice in Russia in absentia 
Um, the first time they put me on trial, they put me on trial with Sergei Magnitsky after they killed him. It was the first ever that's, trial against a dead man. So w- were you convicted? Yeah, of course I was convicted. <laughs> no question. I've been sentenced to, 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 twice to nine years in prison, to 18 years in prison in total in Russia. So as you introduced me earlier, I am a fugitive from, from Russian justice. And the Russian authorities on multiple occasions have tried to arrest you. They're, 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 they're in, a, in a state of, of raw apoplexy trying to arrest me. It's, it's, it's remarkable. Through they're, With Red Notices, through Interpol. Red Notice is the, also the name of your book. But so my book is called Red Notice, which describes the, the tool that Inter, Interpol, the international police organization, uses as an international arrest warrant that Russia has issued for me uh, issued against me seven different times. So what went through your mind uh, when you were watching the recent uh, uh, press conference with President Trump and President Putin, and Putin brings up your name as somebody he wants to question? Well, it's probably a surprise for, for most Americans who have never heard of me um, to hear some name being brought up by Putin um, as a bargaining chip in some strange situation. Um, it, for me, it wasn't a surprise at all. This is not the first time Putin's brought my name up. He's constantly repeating my name and making the same allegations. And I, I should point out to— for, He's called you a serial killer, by the way. He's called me a serial killer. He's yeah. called me a, a, a CIA MI6 agent. He's called by the me, way, which, which, if true, would make you the first serial killer to appear on Skullduggery. So. <laughs> well, <laughs> talk, that, talk about Skullduggery. I mean, serial killing <laughs> yeah, is the right. real thing. Yeah. As far as you know. Yeah. <laughs> Good point. Yeah. <laughs> Touche. <laughs> right. So—, so so um, uh, uh, Putin is just – he's lost his he, – he's kind of lost his mind as far as I'm concerned. I mean he's really – he's obsessed with me. He um, constantly brings me up. This is not the first time. It won't be the last time. In fact, I would guess that when he comes to America for the fall summit with Donald Trump, he's going to have another go at me because that's what he does. He had a, He's had seven goes at me through Interpol. Why would he stop – after one rejection. Explain also, then he also brought up former Ambassador McFall, which surprised a lot of us. What was McFall's supposed connection to uh, the case against you? Well, so if you read my book, Red Notice, um, I discuss a number of individuals who were very helpful in getting the Magnitsky Act passed. Mike McFall, there's a person named Kyle Parker. Kyle Parker Mm -hmm. is the um, uh, chief of staff at the U.S. Helsinki Commission. He was the individual who single-handedly drafted the Magnitsky Act. Um, they, they, they put Jonathan Weiner. Jonathan Weiner it, it was a former State Department mm-hmm. official who, who conceived of the idea of the Magnitsky Act. Uh, they put Bob Otto, who's a senior State Department official, who is an, an intelligence officer, who, who uh, vetted and verified all the information that went into the Magnitsky Act. Um, uh, they, they put on three special agents from the Department of Homeland Security um, who were investigating money laundering in New York in connection with the Magnitsky case. Basically, everybody in the U.S. government who had some role in the Magnitsky case, um, at a, who were a, had a, a public or effective role in the Magnitsky case, were put on this list of people that uh, Vladimir Putin wanted to trade um, for the 12 GRU agents on Mueller's list. Well, let's actually let's pick up on that point because at the press conference, Putin comes up with this uh, scheme. Uh, he offers uh, to let uh, Mueller's special counsel Mueller's uh, team come over while while these twelve uh, GRU uh, agents are are in, uh, interviewed in in Russia. In exchange, he wants to be able to send uh, the Russian authorities over to interrogate McFall and you um, and. What does Donald Trump say? He calls that an, inc- an, an, an incredible offer. What was your reaction to that? Well, I mean, first of all, he shouldn't have said that. <laughs> I, was, I was appalled and shocked. Um, he should have rejected it within like two seconds. So, so under no circumstances would we, would we ever do that. But he said it was an incredible offer. And to add insult to injury and to his own credibility, um, uh, two days later when he was back in Washington, uh, Sarah Huckabee Saunders was asked by – by a reporter, um, what, are they, is the president ready to hand over me and McFall and these um, 10 other individuals? And uh, she said, well, we're still considering it. We have the president's discussing it with his team. But then, then they later walked it back and said, well, it, but his point table. is yeah, that they actually all. considered it. Yeah, yes, right? right. You know, I mean, and, and, and by the way, they walked it back when they were fully aware that there was going to be a vote in the Senate and the vote was unanimous, 98 to 0. The only people who didn't vote was John McCain, who is, who's not well at the moment, and one other senator who wasn't present. Yeah. Um, 
it was a unanimous vote of the entire Senate saying this is absolutely outrageous, beyond outrageous. This is, I mean, these were, I mean, putting putting me aside, I, I emigrated to the UK 29 years ago. I'm a British citizen. The 11 other people were, were um, and putting Mike McFall aside, who is a public figure, the 10 other people were all um, uh, effectively people who, who are um, toiling away on behalf of the United States government, patriots uh, of the state. They're not doing it for glory. They're not doing it for money. They're doing it for patriotism, work in service to America um, to fight Russian uh, crime. And, and, uh, uh, and President Trump considered handing these people over to the criminals. It's like, it's like uh, handing Marines over to ISIS for interrogation. Um, the, uh, uh, you've made uh, a number of serious allegations and you talked before about the 50% cut that Putin was getting on some of the seizures of, uh, uh, from the oligarchs. Um, Danny asked you before what your evidence was. You said you didn't have hard evidence at the time, but you do now tell us what it is. Well, so, so, so the way that Putin operates in these situations is he has what I call oligarch trustees. Um, in the, in the early days, they were the well-known oligarchs. And then Putin has sort of um, appointed new oligarchs um, since then, uh, not in addition to those old oligarchs who hold money for him. One of the, um, if, you, if you remember, the Panama Papers came out um, a couple of years ago. And the Panama Papers, each country had a star. And Russia's star was a guy who was a famous cellist in Russia named Sergei Roldugin. And Sergei Roldugin, um, according to the Panama Papers, um, had accumulated $2 billion worth of assets coming from Russian oligarchs and Russian state banks. Sergei Roldugin is also Putin's best childhood friend, the godfather to one of Putin's daughters, and a cellist for the Mariinsky Orchestra. Now, there's no rational reason that anyone can think of why a cellist would have $2 billion. Um, it's not as if cello playing is a particularly lucrative profession. And um, what most people, including myself, believe, and what's sort of commonly acknowledged is that Roldugin is a nominee um, for Vladimir Putin. Now, now that, that, that link um, hasn't been proven. That link is just speculated, but I think it's a pretty, pretty reasonable speculation and one that most, in, most uh, people in, in, uh, in the finance world and intelligence have come to the conclusion of. One other allegation you made uh, at the um, a uh, Aspen Security Forum uh, was about Congressman uh, Dana Rohrabacher. And you said, you, uh, you said he's on the Kremlin's payroll. Well, I, um, I said I believe he's on the Kremlin's payroll. That's my opinion. Uh, okay, but but that's a pretty serious charge. Tell us what your basis for making that is. Um, in the spring of 2016, um, Dana Rohrabacher went to Moscow in a congressional delegation, and some of the um, Russian part, uh, counterparts whispered to him to sort of peel off from the group because they wanted to organize a meeting for him. And he, the meeting they organized was with a man named Victor Green. Victor Green was the deputy general prosecutor of Russia. Victor Green was the person who played a crucial role in the persecution of Sergei Magnitsky. And Victor Green is on the U.S. Magnitsky list. In his meeting with Victor Green, um, uh, Victor Green gave uh, Rohrbacher a number of documents and requested for him to go back and to try to stop the Magnitsky Act from going, the global Magnitsky Act from going through Congress, which was being considered in the spring and summer of 2016. Dana Rohrbacher dutifully goes back um, to Washington and it intervenes and tries to take the, the Global Magnitsky Act and tries to get it off of the agenda of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Um, I got a call from someone on the House Foreign Affairs Committee explaining to me Rohrbacher's role, trying to stop it. He was spreading around documents provided to him by Victor Green in Russia um, to members of the House Foreign Affairs Committee. And he says he was just trying to give the other side, the Russian government's uh, perspective on the events. But what's but, particularly interesting that we can uh, just tie it into the um, news of – if we can tie it into where the Russia investigation is going, these are essentially the same documents, the same material that is presented at the Trump Tower meeting by the Russian lawyer um, uh, Natalia Veselnitskaya. Well, so and and furthermore, these are the same talking points that Putin used in this in the um, uh, in his uh, out, uh, outburst um, during the press conference at right. the Helsinki summit. That this this is a this these documents these points um, these allegations um, have been consistently aired, and so you have Dana Rohrbacher airing them, you have um, Natalia Veselnitskaya airing them, and you have Vladimir Putin airing them. So, Bill, um, your your uh, anti-corruption crusade. 
against uh, the Russian government and Vladimir Putin continues, you want to expand it beyond the United States Congress um, into Europe. Um, you have not gotten um, a whole lot of a whole lot of uh, enthusiastic reaction in, in the EU, have you? Well, I, I hadn't for a while, but but um, uh, people always ask me, who's your best advocate for this cause? And my best advocate is Vladimir Putin himself. And so um, I was having trouble in the UK, which is my home country, for a long time. They were, they're loving Russian money in the UK and London. It's a big Russian money center. But after um, Putin was using Novichok to go after Sergei Skripal, um, Nobody could stand up in parliament and, and defend the idea of not having a Magnitsky Act. And so we now have a Magnitsky Act in the UK. We, there's a Magnitsky Act in Canada. Um, we have a Magnitsky Act in Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania, these small border countries to Russia who understand exactly what's going on over there. Um, we have one in Gibraltar. Um, uh, and, and most importantly, now there's eight countries on deck. We have um, France, Germany, Sweden, Denmark, Holland in Europe. We have Australia, South Africa, and Ukraine. And um, I would argue, and it feels that way to me, and I'm the one in the middle of it, is that the Magnitsky Act is going viral. Everybody's looking for a policy to contain Putin, something that, that, that's asymmetric that works. And the Magnitsky Act has proven to work from a variety of different standpoints. But the best standpoint or the best proof that it works is Vladimir Putin's own reaction, which was demonstrated absolutely clearly at the Helsinki summit, which is why would he be attacking some private individual, Bill Browder, um, because he hates the Magnitsky Act. And the Magnitsky Act, his outburst proves that it works. And, um, and, and I would argue that, um, that, that he's done me nothing but a huge, great service by doing that in Helsinki. Um, so bottom line, uh, if there is a root cause for the uh, decline in relations between the United States and the Western world, it's because of you. No, no, it's because of Vladimir Putin. All, all I'm doing is pointing out what he's up to. <laughs> and uh, the, so the Russian prosecutor general uh, said recently that the Russian government would not allow you to sleep soundly. How, how are you sleeping these days? I had the best sleep of my life last night. <laughs> uh, Bill Browder, thanks for joining us on Skullduggery. Thank you. Thanks to Bill Browder and Tom Bostert for joining us on this week's episode. Don't forget to subscribe to Skullduggery on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And tell us what you think. Leave a review. And Skullduggery is also on SiriusXM. Subscribers can catch the latest episode on POTUS Channel 124 every Saturday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, with replays at 10 p.m. on Saturday and Sundays at 2 a.m. and 1 p.m. Eastern Time. We'll talk to you next week. Music.